Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're done with your Oreo. Yeah, don't like my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, do you really know what happened? The brother did. The brother. That's why I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Did you just talk about death? Yeah. I mean, I. Mystery, murdery, thingy, 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 thingy. Yay! We made it. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. I love Wednesdays. Uh huh. What's your favorite thing about Wednesday? I only have one class. That's I get out good. at noon. Yeah. And so then I can do whatever I want. Cool. It's not, I usually take a nap and then I try to do some homework. But sometimes right. I don't do any homework. Wasn't your first aim name like Nap Queen or something? Uh, queen, I, queen of no, Naps. Oh, I have a shirt that says that. Oh, yeah. You have a shirt that says Queen of Naps. It's cute. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, um... Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Mystery Murdery Thingy. I'm Chloe. I'm Mario. <laughs> um, we're going to continue, you know, the theme from last week of political mysteries. We did decide to do at least one more episode. And I don't know. I think I might do another episode on the topic I have for today because there's like even like a lot more. But, Ooh, you're digging deep. Digging deep. Yeah, I just keep digging, and there's more, way fucking more shit down there in this well of shit that wow. I've been digging through. Um, but we'll get to that, because you are going first yes. this week. Yes, Unusually. Usually yeah, I like, snag it. Usually, like, I want to go first. Well, I like that we my, decided... My, my stories are more impressive. Uh-huh, that's great. <laughs> I like that we decided early on that we were not going to do the thing that MFM does, like, trading back and forth. So you have to, like, remember who went first last week. No, it and doesn't matter. And that we matter. were just going to do, like, it does... We do not fucking care. No, it doesn't matter. I, we, I think it's based on story, but whatever. Yeah, yeah, we... we you're, you're right. We don't do it just, like, randomly. We usually try to have some logic to it, but anyway. Team mystery. Yay. Okay. <laughs> so, yo, this is... Yo. This is one hell of a story, let me tell ya. What happened to the famous race horse, Shergar? <laughs> <laughs> what did happen to the famous race horse, Shergar? So... You're going to feel really bad for laughing. Oh, no. So, I'm just going to... So he was a thoroughbred bay colt, which is a kind of horse. <laughs> I know, okay, for the record, I know nothing at all about horses, about horse racing. I had to look up a lot of words, a lot of definitions. Yep. A lot of equine terminology. Equine terminology. So Sugar was special. His first race was September 19th in 1980, and he won by two and a half lengths. Okay, so the definition of a length is a horse length, or simply length, is a unit of measurement for the length of a horse from nose to tail, approximately eight feet. So 
two and a half lengths would be like... 20 feet. Yeah, 20 feet. That's a long way. (laughs) Uh, Ahead of the crowd. Right. One of his most amazing races took place uh, April 25th, 1981. The Guardian Newspaper Classic Trial at Sandown, a horse racing park in England, which they all have very elaborate names, being ridden by a man named Walter Swinburne. This time, Sugar won by 10 lengths. The entire race is one and a quarter mile, and after one mile, Sugar, this is like his signature. He increases his pace, like he presses, like you're playing a video game oh and you God. press turbo. Wow. And left the other riders in the dust, and he makes racing history. That's insane. He does it over and over again. I think he did like, I want to say like eight or eight to ten um, races total. Mm-hmm. So in May, Shergar ran the Chester the Chester Vase race and won by 12 lengths. He did it the same way. He keeps pace with the leaders the whole time, and then he increases his speed to win. In June next month, Shergar ran at the Epsom Downs race course, and he increased his speed at the very final bend of the course and won by 10 lengths, the largest winning margin of any Epsom Derby. And I think that's like the big one, right? The one that like everybody goes to? I have no idea. Because I feel like I've heard of it. Okay. A few I've weeks- never heard of an, any British horse racing event. I've never heard of anything other than the I- Kentucky Derby and the Preakness and I don't remember what the other leg of the Triple Crown it's is. It's the Kentucky Derby. Read the Kentucky. What That's did I what say? I'm thinking of. No, no, no. You said Kentucky Bur- Bourbon. <laughs> Kentucky Bourbon. Okay, I'm gonna cut this part out. Bullet Bourbon. I love Bullet Bourbon. They should give us money. We're cutting this out. Okay. Okay. So a few weeks later, June 27th, Shergar ran the Irish Derby, and surprise, he won by four. <laughs> I'm so surprised. Commentator Michael O'Hare said, quote, he's winning so easily. It's Shergar first and the rest are nowhere, end quote. So after that win, a group of Americans, her, her, off. <laughs> what? Americans. <laughs> Americans. Um, I don't know why I did that. Because I'm proud to be an American. <laughs> That's it. That's all I was going to do. Oh, my do. God. Cut this out. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm going to keep that in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so after that win, a group of Americans offered $40 million to syndicate the horse. But the owner, the Aga Khan, turned down the offer. Oh, it was the Aga Khan. Instead, uh, the Aga Khan syndicated Shergar for £10 million, which is a little over $12.5 million. So each share was about £250,000. Shergar's final race was at the St. St. Leger Stakes, uh, September 12th. So he came in fourth place. That was his very last race. And it's the first time that ever happened. Uh, Ten days before the race, Sporting Life, a racing newspaper, published an article that said Sugar had not been practicing well and that he had become slower. But his trainer, um, Michael Stout, confirmed the rumors to be untrue. Stout and the Aga Khan ran tests on Shergar because it was very sudden why he um, couldn't run as quickly as he as he had in the past. They ran tests on Shergar, but he was perfectly healthy and there was no explanation for the loss. So instead, he was retired to the Ballymeny Stud in Ireland. Uh, in 1982, he covered 44 mares and ended up with 36 foals. Wow. Prodigious. Yeah. In 1980s Ireland, horse breeding was real. It was huge. It was mm. a huge business, and people were raking in millions of sure. dollars. Um, and his career, especially a, a horse that won right, like right, that, right. his career as a stud was extremely successful. Yeah. So let's talk about the kidnapping, the theft okay. of Shergar, the racehorse. Oh. <clears throat> February 8th, 1983, three masked men broke into the home of Jim Fitzgerald, who runs um, Ballymeny. They were part of a group of six men, possibly up to nine. We're not sure. Uh, so they lock his family in a room, and then they have two guards, like, guard the house, and they lead him out of his house by gunpoint, forced him to lead Shergar out of his stable and into a horse box. 
Fitzgerald was forced, after that, he was forced into a van and told to lie down on the floor as they drove around, quote, for a good while, and was released near a village called Kilcock, 20 miles away from Ballymeny. Wow. He was given a code name, King Neptune, so um, the thieves can contact him again. Hmm. The perpetrators threatened that if he called the police, his entire family would be killed. So here he is in the middle of nowhere, uh, 20 miles from his home. He finally gets home four, four hours later and makes a series of phone calls. Shergar's vet was one of the many associates and shareholders that were contacted during this time. Uh, they didn't reach the Aga Khan until 4 a.m., and that's when they called the police. So he called all of these people, then the Aga Khan, and then the uh, Aga Khan told uh, Fitzgerald to call the police. Hmm. But at that point, eight it was eight hours after it happened, and the trail had already gone cold. Right. Uh, the kidnappers had chosen the, the day before Ireland's major Goff's racehorse sale, when horse boxes were being driven the length and breadth of the country. Mm. They were so they were everywhere that right. day, That's so they didn't stand tactic. out yeah. to abduct Shergar, thereby making it more difficult for the stallion to be found. So they also had a series of negotiations uh, about ransoms and whether Shergar's alive and stuff like that. So four hours after the kidnapping, before police were even contacted, horse breeder Jim Maxwell was contacted by the alleged thieves. This is his first phone call. They demanded a ransom of 40,000 pounds. He asked if the horse was in good condition, and they said yes. Uh, he also spoke to Jim's wife, who said that the man on the phone seemed like, seemed like quote, a very rational, well-spoken man, end quote. <laughs> he was, was like, a okay. very polite horse thief. Yeah. You know. Shortly after, another call was received, a second call, at, but this time at the BBC in Belfast. So the man spoke with a Southern Irish accent and said they would negotiate with three people, and he named top three top London racing journalists, Derek Thompson and John Oxy of ITV and Peter Campling from The Sun. The men were told to be at the Europa Hotel in central Belfast by the that Thursday evening. Hmm. So they do it. Uh, they Once they get to the hotel, they get another call, third call, this time telling them to go to a farmhouse 30 miles outside of Belfast, the Maxwell House. Uh, where the horse breeder Jim Maxwell had gotten the first call. Okay. I try to number the calls because there's a lot, and they're confusing, and they yeah. happen simultaneously. They're like, there's different, because mm-hmm. there's more than one. This is one of those cases where you need to have, like, a a board with pieces of string mm. and, like, little note cards connecting, connecting everything Connecting all together. of them? Yeah. So the three journalists, they all get to the Maxwell house. Then uh, they received a call at 1.15 a.m. The police couldn't trace the call because, one, they didn't talk long enough, and two, the officer who knows how to trace the call had gone home at midnight. Oh. The next morning, the same, same house, Maxwell's house, received another call. Caller said, quote, the horse has had an ex- accident. He's dead. End quote. They hung up, and that was the last they ever heard of him. Oh, my God. The thieves also called the stud farm um, directly, and, and a demand of two million pounds was made for the return of Shergar and for a contact number in France through which further negotiations could be made. So a man named Gisling Drian, who's one of Sugar's managers, he's the one who answered the phone, and uh, he provided the number of the Aga Khan's French office. So it's like playing phone tag. They negotiated from the Aga Khan's office in Paris with a series of telephone calls over four days. So there's a lot of stalling, kind of fucking around. Okay. Negotiators demanded proof that Shergar was still alive. There were rumors in the media um, saying that Shergar might be dead, so they wanted proof. And there was also a debate over paying the ransom or not. Shergar had 35 shareholders. He didn't necessarily belong 
to to one odor owner. Right. Uh, the idea was that paying the ransom would get Shergar back safe and sound. And the other idea was that paying the ransom would invite other thieves to ki- kidnap other racehorses for money. Mm-hmm. The thieves said that a representative of, of the syndicate should go to the Crofton Hotel in Dublin and ask for any messages for, quote, Johnny Logan, who who's the name of an Irish singer. A man named, or an officer named Stan Cosgrove went to the hotel and asked for any messages. He didn't go alone, though. There were, like, armed people with him, but they were undercover. No, there was nothing there. No message was delivered, and Cosgrove returned home after waiting. Shortly afterwards, the negotiators received a phone call from the thieves, again, angry at the presence of the police. So they were there, and they mm-hmm. knew that the police were watching, so they didn't do anything. They didn't show up. Mm-hmm. And they threatened that if any, if they got any of the members of the gang, if they were captured or killed, the, negotiate, the negotiators and police would be murdered in retribution. Mm-hmm. So they like weren't. They're ready to shoot people. Shoot people. Right. They're not fucking around. Yeah. On Saturday, February twelfth, the thieves contacted the negotiators again and said that proof had been left at the Rosemary Hotel. So the proof had several Polaroid pictures showing Shergar. Some of the pictures showed the horse's head next to a copy of the Irish News right. dated, like, the date of. Sure, sure. Um, in a telephone call from the thieves to the negotiators at 10.40 p.m. that same night, it was explained that the syndicate, their their owners, were not satisfied with the pictures. They were not about it. Um, they said it didn't constitute enough proof. They want full pictures and everything. Uh, the caller told the negotiators that, quote, if you're not satisfi- satisfied, that's it, end, end quote. The call was ended and the thieves never made any further contact, um, despite their attempts to reach out to them. Okay, theories. The Irish Mafia kidnapped Shergar in retaliation for a deal with the Aga Khan that went wrong. He had been seized for Colonel, second theory, he had been seized for, for Colonel Gaddafi in Libya in return for arms for the IRA. Your fa- what? <laughs> That's just like very complicated. <laughs> um, some say he was never killed um, and instead kept breeding foals secretly. So the IRA was kind of the ones to blame. Okay. And here's why. The... Um- the, should say the, um, the Irish Republican Army. Yes, the Irish yeah. Republican Army, not the American Tax Association or whatever. The Internal IRA. Revenue Service. Inter- not, yeah. IRS. <laughs> IRS. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, the, the, the Irish uh, Republican Army, which of course is the, you know, sort of a terrorist group or, you know, uh, freedom fighters, whatever you want to say, you know, yeah. that were fighting against the unionists and the British to... You know. So. That whole thing. Sean O'Callaghan, an IRA double killer turned police double agent, wrote Mm. a book called The Informer. He named seven former provosts. Is that how you say that? I don't Mm -hmm. know how to say it. Provosts. He claimed had planned and carried out the horses kidnapped. So the book identified Kevin Mallon, who's who is a senior IRA leader, and he's also a convicted killer, as the man who devised the plot. It was his idea. Um, O'Callaghan suggested the horse had thrown itself into a frenzy, injured a leg, and that it was straight, it was just put out of its misery. Quote, was killed within days, even though the IRA kept up the pretense that he was alive, end quote. However, according to one source, a former IRA member who spoke through an intermediary um, not even O'Callaghan had been told the full truth of what happened because the gang was so embarrassed by what actually happened. Okay. So according to the former IRA member, the kidnappers had problems early on because the vet who had agreed to look after Shergar pulled out on the night of the horse's abduction. Four days after Shergar was seized and following extensive stalling by Aga Khan's representative, the Army Council realized that their their that Shergar was worthless, and they told so he told them to just let it go, let it run free. However, by then, Malin was under surveillance, and uh, the police were crawling all over Ireland, and he felt it was 
impossible to move Shergar and he would never get through safe. Um, instead, he ordered the horse to be shot. So this is about to get brutal. The source said that the two handlers, one clutching a machine gun, went to the remote stable where the horse was being held in open fire. Quote, Shergar was machine gunned to death. There was blood everywhere and the horse even slipped on his own blood. There was lots of cussing and swearing because the horse wouldn't die. It was a very bloody death, end quote. It was several minutes before the horse, which was in agony, slowly bled to death. So apparently there's a really specific spot that you have to kill a horse with. Okay. And only, like, they only have, like, trained people do stuff like that. Yeah, otherwise it'll just bleed out horribly. Yeah. Um, that's terrible. And that's what they think happened. Wow. So, the greatest racehorse of the century was butchered in the same way the IRA killed many of its human enemies. So why did the IRA, why, why take this horse? Just for money, for the cause, I guess? Who knows? Yeah, so they don't really know. Yeah. Um, I guess just to get money to, like, yeah, continue their whatever Yeah, activities. no one knows why he was kidnapped or where the body is. Well. Crazy, crazy. right? Yeah, yeah, that is. That was a really it was crazy kinda, It took me a while to, like. Yeah, there's a lot to that. Do these calls, because there was a lot. You're right. All right. Okay. I'm ready. Okay. Okay, so I am doing some of the, and I think I might do another episode of this because I kind of got into a, a rabbit hole here. Um, mm. So I'm just going to go over a few of the sort of misadventures, uh, attempted coups that have been aided and abetted secretly by the CIA. Um <sighs> The Central Intelligence Agency. Why are we always messing around with other people's business? Apparently, we've been doing it for a long time, uh, according to what I've been researching. <laughs> so the the CIA, right? It's the, the they're the people who go out and you know directly spy on people. Like they follow people, right? They l- listen to their conversations. They like break into rooms and search things. Yo, what you know the, they're like they. Um, they uh, get, you know, human spies, you know, to become moles in, a, in organizations and become double agents, things like that. Like, those are the kind of things that the CIA, like, does. Like, that's their kind of, like, their wheelhouse, right? So it, it's already kind of, like, pretty shady, just kind of, like, what, what they tell us that they do, right? But these are the things that they very much wanted to, like, keep hidden. Some of it has come out now because of, like, things getting declassified, you know, over the years, some of it actually really recently, but for a long time, the the real extent of these activities were like not known, and they're they're still not like fully acknowledged by by the CIA by the government. They're still keeping secrets. Definitely, I mean, parts of these are still classified. They 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 never declassify everything, but uh, some portions of it, as I'll go through, like you know, we we How kind of. How do you think know. they pick and choose? What they say is, you know, that it's based on what would pose a danger, you know, to the vital interests of the United States, right? But what is that? That's a that's pretty vague, right? Um, but you know, if it's going to expose someone who was undercover, right, or if it's oh, going to expose, okay. you know, uh, methods that they use to gain intelligence, like you torture know, th- methods or some shit. Well, not only that, but, you know, if we are wiretapping a certain government official, say, in a friendly government, oh and that's God. how we, and that's the only possible way we could have gotten this information, and therefore, you know, so they would acknowledging stuff like that, you know, th- things like that, you know, there, there are situations in which it sort of is a national security risk, according to the CIA, to, but. Okay, go on. Well, I think it's an important discussion also just about the CIA, you know, and, and, and like, the the nature of, w- of what they do. But I think it's it's also important to note that they also sometimes maybe often go too far with that, too far with sort of hoarding information. And that was part of the issue, you know, leading up to 9-11, which I'm not going to get into that at all in this episode, but... I was going to say, why? And then we would have gone on. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but it, it just in terms of, like, 
the sort of silos of different intelligence agencies in America. It was much more siloed off in the period in which I'm going to be mostly talking about, which is the 1950s. At this time, the CIA was kind of doing whatever it wanted, as we'll see. And one of the early instances of that is uh, the CIA involvement in Indonesia, um, which they were involved in Indonesia for for decades, right? But um, the period that I'm going to focus on um, mainly is the 1950s. So I'm going to read a quote to start out. This is uh, I got all my info from Wikipedia pretty much this time. A couple other sources, but pretty it was this is pretty much a Wikipedia episode. Oh, I forgot. To, I'll say for mine me. at the end. I forgot to say mine. Okay, that's fine. I'll say them at the end. Um, so this is a quote from the Wikipedia page: CIA activities in Indonesia. Quote: In 1955, the CIA plotted to assassinate President Sukarno, despite objections from then Vice President Nixon. Over the next three years, the CIA attempted to subvert Sukarno by financing his political opponents and bribing other political officials, uh, public officials, rather. This happened until September 25, 1957, when President Eisenhower finally ordered the CIA to overthrow the Sukarno government. In 1958, elements of the Indonesian military with the support of the CIA rebelled against the rule of President Sukarno. This attempted coup ended in failure, as had many other previous CIA overthrow attempts, both in Indonesia and abroad. Close quote. So the, that just gives you a little bit of an idea, right, um, of what the CIA was kind of all about, especially at this period, in, in this period. And they were not, like I said, always or, or maybe even often successful in what they were trying to do. But let's just unpack this a little bit more in terms of what's going on with the CIA in Indonesia. So this failed coup attempt in 1957, they don't give up. They don't say, well, maybe we should just kind of let things play out, you know, as they're going to naturally. And the sort of reason why they wanted to do this was to... Yeah, what, what, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To, uh, <laughs> I was going to ask that. Yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, yeah. So... Basically, Truman and the Americans wanted to ensure a friendly regime in Indonesia, a U.S.-friendly regime. They didn't want them to be too close to the Soviets, of course, because everything at this time was seen through the lens of, is it, you know, moving people into the sphere of the Soviets or into the sphere of the U.S.? Um, In a place like Indonesia, it's kind of like one or the other. Uh, Although, as we'll see, their ruler at this point, or the the president, Sukarno, tried to kind of have it both ways, and the CIA didn't like that. Um, So this plot that went kind of awry, you know, in 1958, it was immediately exposed by the Soviets. They found out about it. They published a story in in an Indian newspaper called Blitz that they kind of controlled about the plot, but again, the CIA not being, you know, uh, put off by that, went ahead um, with with the uh, with with the with the with the coup attempt with the plot. Um, they worked with Indonesian ex-military rebels in some of the restive parts of Indonesia, in Sumatra and Sulawesi, uh, which are two islands in Indonesia, kind of I think in the the northern end of the archipelago. They sent them arms, you know, so guns, weapons, and also they set up an anti-Sukarno propaganda radio station. Um, oh. Actually, the multiple CIA radio did, stations. Oh, did all this? Yes, yes. Uh, the, the CIA was actually themselves, like, set up the, the radio stations. They were kind of blasting this, you know, anti-Sukarno propaganda. Um, those radio stations were actually destroyed on February 5th, 1958, by the Indonesian military that was still loyal to Sukarno. And the Indonesian military also set up a naval blockade. All of this kind of overwhelmed the CIA-backed rebels. The CIA did not think that there was going to be this level of pushback from the government. Um, They really overperformed what the CIA had expected of the resistance to the resistance. Wow, we underestimated them, basically? We, we definitely underestimated them. And also, not only that, but 
what's really kind of embarrassing because of bad coordination, kind of the left hand not knowing what the right hand was doing, the CIA didn't realize that many, quote, top commanders within the Indonesian army were fiercely anti-communist, having been trained in the United States, even calling themselves, quote, the sons of Eisenhower. This misstep led to American-aligned Indonesian military forces fighting American-aligned rebel forces. Oh, my God. So the CIA essentially backing both sides in the conflict, which you see kind of lampooned in the show Archer. If you've ever watched that, there's a particular episode where they they kind of make fun of this, where the, the CIA is like, they're like, yeah, we're giving money to the rebels, but are we, like, supporting the ruler? Yeah, yeah, we're supporting the ruler, and we're giving guns to the rebels, you know, so they can fight each other. It's good. It's good for us. Oh, my God. This stuff actually happens. It's not just, you know, on a comedy show. Like, the CIA actually apparently did that. So they try to restart. You know, again, they're not giving up. This unrest in the outlying islands of Sumatra, etc., and this is really, really unfortunate. Uh, the CIA, I mean, it's more than unfortunate, it's a war crime. The CIA started bombing civilians intentionally. And President Eisenhower apparently actually ordered that no Americans should actually be involved in the bombing itself. But the CIA director, Dulles, reportedly, according to Wikipedia, ignored that order and ordered CIA pilots to specifically target civilians in an attempt to basically um, uh, cre- create unrest there so that they would rebel against their government. How can the president say no Americans will be involved when he's American and he's the one who's doing it? Well, what he said was that no American pilots would be directly involved in actually doing the bombing. So then who would do but, it? The Indonesian military, presumably. Oh, the ones that are fighting for us? Right, exactly. Like the, oh. I, know, I know it gets kind of compli- complicated, but yeah, like, like the official Indonesian military. So this was all revealed when an American CIA pilot named Al Pope was shot down over Indonesia on April 19th, 1958. At that point, you know, we, we kind of couldn't hide the fact that American pilots were directly involved. And this all kind of wrapped up by 1961. Um, the last rebels had surrendered at that point. So this whole you know thing that the CIA was involved in, it just kind of literally crashed and burned. We're stirring the pot. Yeah. Oh, the, this is all stirring the pot, for sure. Oh well, my yes, gosh. for sure. Um, four years later, in 1965, the CIA was, it gets, gets even worse from here, was secretly involved in a brutal anti-communist purge in Indonesia. I don't like that word. Yeah, yeah, a a true purge. Um, Cable, there was a a diplomatic cable from Ambassador Marshall Green to Assistant Secretary of State Bill Bundy that kind of lays out what they were were involved in here in in the mid-60s now. with the the Indonesian military and their anti-communist crusade. So this is a quote from uh, from this cable. This is to confirm my earlier concurrence that we provide Malik with 50 million rupias, about 10,000 American dollars, for the activities of Kap Gestapo movement. The army-inspired but civilian-staffed group is still carrying burden of current repressive efforts. Our willingness to assist him in this manner will, I think, represent in Malik's mind our endorsement of his present role in the Army's anti-PKI efforts and will promote good cooperating relations between him and the Army. The chances of detection or subsequent revelation of our support in this instance are as minimal as any black flag operation can be. Close quote. So I'll, I'll explain that, that quote because there's a lot there. What's going on here? So Malik is Adam Malik, who is an Indonesian who was secretly also a CIA operative. Oh, my gosh. He was reportedly recruited and trained by CIA ag- agent Clyde McAvoy. This is so confusing. So the CIA ag- agent Clyde McAvoy basically makes contact with this guy, Adam Malik, to set up 
you know, a rebel force there within Indonesia to support the Indonesian military killing all of these so, so they communists, just like, supposed communists. They just, like, gain, like, what, soldiers, members? Do they... Wh- yeah, training, you do know, they, arms, like, Do they, like, kidnap money. people or do, are they, do people volunteer? Mm, no, I think that they, this would have been a volunteer force, you know, but, but outside of the you know, established Indonesian military. Yeah. So it's more of a sort of a paramilitary operation that is, you know, there to su- to support and with specific um, information as well. That was kind of the main thing that the CIA brought to the um, to the table as well as is um, the uh, intelligence, you know, aspect of it. And the the PKI is the um, the Communist Party of of Indonesia. And basically, if you were a PKI member, uh, then you were killed in this in this uh, in this purge. But we're fighting communism, right? Very very hard uh, just... to the tune of up to five hundred thousand people. No, being killed. Yeah led to the deaths of as many as 500,000 people. That's fucked up. Yeah. Um, It might not be that, you know, again, in situations like this, it's hard to know. You know, that's kind of the nature of it, right? These things get repressed, suppressed by the governments. But that's the the figure that, you know, is apparently out there. And this is not only according to Wikipedia, right? Um, This is according to to multiple official sources, including a 1967 Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing. Um, So that that's where that figure comes from as well. So, you know, it's it seems high, inflated, but yeah, it's apparently one of these great atrocities that we just kind of never hear about or talk about um, in world history. That our government also was apparently pretty involved in. So this heavier involvement, as we're talking about, was really, you know, kept a very closely guarded secret by the CIA. But um, did, you know, different information came out throughout the years, including in 1990 by this journalist, Kathy Cadane. Kathy! Yeah. So she did this kind of deep dive reporting and found that the U.S. involvement included a list of several thousand names of Indonesians that she purported acted as essentially a kill list for the Indonesian army. So the CIA, again, with their intelligence, gathering the names of all of these you know people who were su- supposedly you know, in the PKI, connected to the PKI, and they were just summarily executed. Uh, no arrest, no trial, no nothing. Um, just murdered, outright killed. The The CIA and embassy officials um, there in Jakarta deny, of course, her account in 1990 and say that the list was simply to track the status of those people, right? That it wasn't so much a list, a kill list. It was just like a list of people that, you know, we need to keep track of. I mean, I in guess. Case we, in case maybe somebody kills them, maybe. Maybe the people we told about it. I guess. Perhaps. But the, uh... Kind of implausible, right? What makes it more implausible and, and really just kind of, strange credulity beyond the breaking point is that contemporaneous memos, including some that were written by the very same people who were denying it, right, confirmed, they they seemed to clearly confirm that her accusations were true. And in fact, they themselves uh, in the early 2000s had confirmed certain portions of what was in those memos as well. So the this this notion that they were more deeply involved seems to be correct. Um, that there was a high level of coordination between the CIA, that, that essentially the CIA was directing the Indonesian military with the, the kill list um, and that they were well aware of what it was being used for. And this campaign of indiscriminate killings um, did not seem to bother these people who were working at the CIA at all. 
and for further evidence that the CIA um, was involved, there's actually further information that's been dug up by this documentary filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer. In um, 2016, based on all this evidence, a tribunal was convened in The Hague and concluded that What's what the Hague? Uh, the Hague is a, a city in um, in Denmark, I think. I'm not sure what country it's in. Sorry, it it's where the International Criminal Court is located. Um, it's just kind of one of these places places where international organizations kind of um, you know meet and everything. So they had, they convened this international tribunal, and it concluded that. What happened in Indonesia in 1965 to 1967 or 68 constituted crimes against humanity. Yes. And that the U.S. and other Western governments were complicit in those crimes. And just last year, actually, on October 17th, 2017, more documents were declassified from the U.S. Embassy in Jakarta from uh, 1963 to 1966. And they, quote, uh, revealed that not only did the U.S. government have detailed knowledge of the killings as they happened and welcomed them, but also actively encouraged and facilitated the massacres to further their geopolitical interests in the region. So some serious blood on their hands um, in terms of what the CIA was doing in Indonesia, in the you know, mid mid fifties to to mid sixties. Uh, so pretty pretty fucked up. Yo, I had no idea. The, and the, that's just, that's once I didn't even go over everything from Indonesia. And there's okay, there's more. I'm gonna do two more, and then I think I might keep going in another episode because there's way more <laughs> of these kind of things. So moving on, August nineteenth, nineteen fifty three. In Iran, um, which at that point was a constitutional monarchy. Okay. So 1953, August 19th, the CIA fomented what is believed to be the U.S.'s first coup in peacetime. So this was not only a, you know, um, uh, an operation that was carried out by the CIA, but also by the British Secret Service, the MI6, they were heavily involved in this as well. And the coup known as Operation Ajax was to overthrow the elected prime minister, Mohammed Mossadegh, and replace him with a man who was more amenable to the Shah, the king, essentially, who was closely aligned with the American government. Um, Mossadegh was sort of also what this is kind of the proximate cause of of the coup was messing around with what was called the Anglo-Iranian oil company AIOC and AIOC was one of the major major oil companies in the world at that time and was um a lots of money lots and lots of money it eventually it developed into British Petroleum okay BP or what they like to call beyond petroleum now um, but it, it started out way back when as Anglo-Iranian oil company, or at least a portion of it did. And it was a very, very important holding to the British government and also to the Shah. You know, all, all that oil money, basically, you know, prop, helping to prop up the state and everything. So Mossadegh went so far as to actually wanting to nationalize Iran's oil, which would, of course, have completely cut out the sort of Anglo portion, right, of the Anglo-Iranian oil company. And therefore, taking out Mossadegh was seen as in the vital national interest of the U.S. and of Britain. The U.S. was, was you know, kind of involved in this as well. Is it because he... I'm confused. So the prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, wanted to nationalize the oil industry in Iran, Whereas the British had a, you know, controlling interest in the oil, the, the one oil company in the country. Okay. So it would have completely cut them out. Right. So in their, in their mind, it would have been a huge disaster if this guy continued on to be. Exactly. It, it was king. a sort of existential crisis. 
<laughs> in their eyes um, if, if Mossadegh stayed in, in office. So on August 19th, um, what it started out with was a sort of an incitement of a riot by this influential Iranian named Ayatollah Mohammad uh, Bibani, who had been given large amounts of money by the CIA to go out and, and you know, hire people to foment this riot. And when the unrest happened, the um, government used that as an excuse um, to, or th- rather the elements of the army that were against the prime minister used it as an excuse to intervene, um, push back the, uh, the, the, uh, the opposition um, protesters and storm government buildings and take over the government, essentially. This one riot that they started? Exactly. So they, they, they create this unrest, this riot, and then they use it as an excuse to go and take over the government. That's so backwards. Yeah. I so, just... <laughs> I know, right? Um, one tank shell apparently was fired into Mossadegh's house, and he subsequently went, you know, kind of ran and hid for a while, you know, briefly tried to get things to, you know, uh, some some uh, kind of pushback, but it wasn't going to happen. And he surrendered and told his supporters to lay down their arms. And it was over. This one was actually um, successful in, in terms of at least the, the goal that the CIA wanted to and the MI, and MI6 wanted to do. And also, of course, the Shah. Uh, who returned to Tehran, the capital of Iran, with CIA Director Dulles um, in the same plane. Mossadegh was initially sentenced to death, but the Shah commuted his sentence to three years of solitary confinement and then house arrest for the rest of his life. Why was he arrested? I'm not exactly sure what the charge was other than being the political opposition, but when you live in a monarchy that's supposed to be a constitutional monarchy but seems kind of like an absolute monarchy, anything can happen, I guess. So I'm not totally sure about that. So the full U.S. involvement in this incident was not acknowledged until t- 2013. So, wow. you know, 60 years later, basically, um, President Eisenhower had approved the operation, whereas his predecessor, President Truman, did not approve a similar plan. Truman was much more, um, m- much more, um, you know, kind of reticent to get involved in these kind of overseas entanglements. Whereas, of course, President Eisenhower, coming from you know being the you know U.S. Allied commander in Europe was very much, I think, more uh, comfortable with overseas and military entanglements. So this was, um, this operation was also supported by a pair of brothers, kind of interesting, one of whom was the Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, and the other was the CIA director, Alan Dulles. Wow. So they were, like, secretly working on this, like, plan to overthrow the Prime Minister of Iran together. But they were brothers, so it's kind of cute. Right? Not at all. Okay, maybe, maybe <laughs> not. Hey, we're brothers. Let's commit war crimes together. Um, so main uh, the main CIA operatives involved in this were Officer Kermit Roosevelt Jr., happens to be the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt, and Agent Donald Wilbur. And these two agents, or this agent and this officer, liberally handed out bribes to Iranian government officials, reporters, businessmen, all the way down to street thugs, you know, some of whom, again, were used to create the, the riot that, that uh, on our, the August 19th riot. They also funded false flag protests of the Shah to garner support for the Shah. What? So they paid people to go out and act like they were protesting against the Shah because they knew that he personally was very popular in the country. In order to, you know, kind of sweep under the rug the other stuff they were doing and paint so the opposition a in a bad light. It was a distraction. Yeah, exactly. And it's thought that 
as much as $20 million was used by the CIA at the time for these purposes. So they just kind of had this, like, slush fund of oh apparently God. up to $20 million that they were using. And this is, again, not at all unique to this instance when it comes to the CIA. If you hear anything about their involvement in Afghanistan, there's just, like, literally, like, bags of money, like, being taken places. Like, it's fucking crazy. So this intervention was cited about 25 years later when, of course, the Shah himself was overthrown by the 1997 or 1979, rather, Islamic Revolution, which instituted the government that's still in place now. It also, this incident also contributed to a sense in Iran and, of course, all around the world that America was routinely involved in these kind of anti-democratic misadventures, uh, which, of course, we are. We are. We were. We have been. We, in some ways, I guess, still are. The sense, you know, essentially is not is not wrong. Okay, I'm just going to do one more. Um, this one should, it should be pretty quick. So, yeah, okay. So just a year after the coup against Mossadegh in Iran, the CIA decides, okay, let's go ahead and do this in our neck of the woods uh, in Central America, in Guatemala. So they decide to involve themselves in the plot to overthrow Guatemalan President Jacobo Arbenz. Just for shits and gigs? For reasons. They, you know, they, they always have some reasons. So the U.S. had been kind of looking askance, kind of giving the side eye to Guatemala <laughs> for many years, uh, ever since a popular revolution had instituted democracy there in 1944. Now, you may say, oh, a, a demo- why, what problem yeah. would we have with a democracy, right? But this democracy was seen as communist-leaning. And, of course, 1944 in America, anything that is painted at all red yeah, yeah. is verboten. Exactly. So especially when the Guatemalan president, Arbenz, in 19, when he came to power in 1951, legalized the Communist Party in uh, Guatemala and also instituted some, you know, f- fairly modest land reforms. And they just thought that, okay, this seems like they're tipping toward communism. We can't have communist expansion. Therefore, we must intervene. There was also, of course, if you know anything about this intervention, a high um, amount of it was also to do with the United Fruit Company, who was an American um, producer of fruit, obviously, who was one of the main... um, producers down in in Guatemala and you know just was was a, a big presence there um and they why would they stop selling giving us fruit or something no because the united fruit company would be negatively affected by an end to some of the exploitative labor practices that were going on previously which the new president arbenz was going to stop so the united fruit company says okay we're not going to be able to have these cheap labor that we can exploit in the way that we used to. So they lobbied to the U.S., you know, to President Truman to get involved in the situation. Wow. To intervene and have someone there who would continue to allow them to exploit the native population. That's fucked up. Not the this only, is all so Not the only like, time this has ever happened this either. Is, this is all so shady and, like, dark. Yeah. I've, yeah, if, if you've ever wondered, and, and I know many of you are probably like, yeah, doy. But, you know, if you're, like, from America and you've ever wondered, like, why is everybody, like, boo America? Like, what's wrong with us? Like, what did we ever do to anybody? And that's our sentiment over here. Like, like I feel like a lot of people think that way. <laughs> and it's, it's like, you know, okay, don't hold it against every American what our government does, right? Of course. Um, and it's not like America doesn't do a lot of good stuff for the world, too. But we've done a lot of fucked up shit including a lot of stuff that the CIA has done. So, like, there's not no reason that, like, a bunch of people hate us in a lot of places in the world. <laughs> like, it's not coming from nowhere, okay? <laughs> I just want, want to highlight that. Um, and this is definitely, like, part part of that shit like this. Okay, so 
the they um, agree to get involved right at the urging of the United Fruit Company and all this other stuff that's happening. The plan, though, to do this wasn't kind of fully baked under President Truman, so it had to wait until Eisenhower came into office. So now we're in August 1953, and uh, President Eisenhower uh, authorizes Operation PB Success is what it's uh, codenamed. So this is a CIA-funded, armed, and trained operation, which is uh, basically constituted of 480 men under Carlos Castillo Armas. And the force invaded Guatemala on June 18, 1954. There was a simultaneous U.S. broadcast of uh, literal fake news, propaganda, to erode the opposition. Like, they broadcast things that were happening in the conflict that were very favorable to the, you know, rebels under Armas that were not actually true. Like, that wasn't actually happening. Stuff like that. And their um, show of force and psychological manipulation worked very effectively. The Guatemalan army... Well, it's happening here. (laughs) Right, exactly. Sometimes psychological warfare is actually a lot more effective and it's fucking a lot cheaper than (laughs) conventional warfare. Yeah. Um, And America has used that literally throughout our entire history. Definitely. um, From the Revolutionary War, which actually there were a, a lot of deception and shit like that in the Revolutionary War, which is interesting. But anyway, in this instance, uh, the Guatemalan army just refused to fight. They laid down their arms. They just surrendered. So they were just kind of intimidated into giving up, essentially. And while Arbenz briefly attempted a sort of civilian result, uh, revolt against the coup, it was an abject failure. And he resigned on June 27th. Understandably, this did not help the CIA and the U.S.'s, of course, reputation, as we've been talking about, in the region or all around the world. Um, The CIA did try to find a sort of post hoc, you know, after the fact justification for these efforts. (laughs) Um, this This was called Operation PB History, but it failed to show any links between... Uh, Arbenz and the Soviets. That was the justification they were trying to use that, oh, there was this foreign intervention going on, so we had to intervene as a foreign power to counteract it, except it seems like there was none, so it was us. It was just us. We were just the ones intervening. (laughs) I know. I know. It's all kind of like, what the hell were they thinking right at the time? (laughs) So, unfortunately, this incident, and of course many other things, um, led to a hugely unstable period in Guatemalan history, just in general, that literally we're still seeing today. When did this take place again? This was in 1950s. 50s. Yeah, 1954. And what is it, 64 years later, Guatemala has not recovered. Um, They are still badly governed as far as I understand from basic standpoint. Are they still being exploited labor-wise? I believe so. Um, Certainly it's a very, you know, insecure uh, insecure place and one, of course, from which many people are now attempting to come to the United States because of its instability, because of of its insecurity. Incidents like this, not only this, but including this, are part of why that's happening. So I think also we need to remember when we get refugees at our door, you know, what what is our role in creating the situation that led to them becoming refugees? And therefore, what does that say about our, uh, in, you know, sort of inherent, what, what do we owe them, right, in terms of what, what we did? Anyway... Um, yeah, the new president, you know, the Castillo Armas guy, um, he, yeah, quickly assumed dictatorial powers, banned oh, opposition wow. parties. This is the guy that, that, that we gave all the money and the arms to to, to send in. By, by the way, this this guy is great, great guy, right? Um, imprisoned and tortured political opponents and reversed all the social reforms 
that the previous uh, president had instituted. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so we can, uh, yeah, we can really pick them. I'll tell you what. And I, and I think I'm, I may keep talking about this in the next episode. Sorry, I know it's like a lot, and it, it's like a lot of history, but I think it's it's pretty interesting. It's like all the all the fucked up shit that the CIA has done. I, I'm like blown away. Yeah. I know. It's I, crazy. I just like. It's crazy that we never hear about this stuff or like talk about it. Like, it gets reported when the documents get declassified and things like that. But it's not like it's front page news or something, you know. But. It certainly would have been in 1955 <laughs> if, if you would have been like, yep, that was us. We just, we did that. We did it all. And so some of this stuff wasn't declassified till like now? Many, many years later. Yeah, I mean, some, um, that one I was talking about, a lot of those documents weren't declassified until last year from the 50s. Jeez. And like I said, I got my info from Wikipedia. The wonderful Wikipedia, the wonderful world of Wikipedia, um, CIA activities in Indonesia, uh, the 1953 Iranian coup d'etat, the 1954 Guatemalan coup d'etat. So those pages. Anyway, that's that's pretty much everything I got. Amazing. Yeah. So you ready for some uh, weird, weird shit, shit in, in the, the news? news? Weird shit in the news. Okay. Realtor.com. <clears throat> Football players suspended from team for running naked with Oreos wedged in buttocks. Um, oh, my God. So this happened in Illinois. So this happened. In oh, Illinois. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah right. Anywhere near here. Right home. Um, Byron, Illinois. I've I never, I've never heard of it. I don't know where that is. But 10 football players were suspended from the game. What happened was they, like, admitted stuff to their parents. And that's when, that's how they got caught. Never admit anything. Um, <laughs> that's your problem right there. But I don't know how they determined this, but they said it wasn't hazing. It said, Byron High School players were suspended for indecent exposure, but that school administrators concluded that they went on the Oreo run at the school's football field voluntarily and were not victims of hazing. Maybe they just all, you know, professed how much they loved putting Oreos in their butt. I, and they believed him. Whose idea was it? Probably Mr. Oreo. <laughs> Your turn. Your weird, turn. Weird fucker. Okay, so mine is from a CNN what? story uh, titled 500-Year-Old Skeleton Still Wearing Thigh-High Boots Found in London River. Hell yeah. Yeah. So this is by Rob Pichetta. And it is about this skeleton of a man who perhaps is as many as 500 years old. And it was found, uh, the remains were found face down in the mud under the River Thames. One would have thought it would have been found before this, but apparently they're dredging things up for this new super sewer that they're building. It's going to cost $5.4 billion, apparently. Oh! So that was pretty cool. Good for you, London. I guess you're getting a new sewer. Good on ya. I feel like that's a good thing to spend money on. Yeah. I, I think so. <laughs> so. I agree. That's a good thing. So they don't know, you know, how he died exactly. It's it's not really clear after all this time. Um or exactly why his boots are still preserved, but they have some ideas. So they think he may have been a fisherman, you know, maybe a sailor. Apparently his teeth have this, like, wearing that they think might have been because of the the rope that they would always put between their teeth, the sailors, oh. which is the thing, I guess. And the boots apparently were very well uh, insulated with, like, sap and stuff. And they also had, uh, like, extra soles. So they, they were just, like, very durable boots. Apparently, time travel. You know. Yep. It's probably. It has, like, probably the Hunter logo travel. on it. Right, right, right. Exactly. Somebody was leaving them for themselves there. You know, Doctor Who had to come back 500 years later. It's that sort of thing. You know, send yourself a box, you know. <laughs> from Samuel Colt. <laughs> from 1861. Oh, my God! 
We were just watching that episode of Supernatural. Supernatural. Thanks for listening, you guys. For sure, for sure. Keep listening. I sound like a hippie. Um, for sure, for sure. Support your local podcast. Um, tell all your friends. Do that. Write it on your social media. Um, Have a good day. Look at our Instagram. As long as we're telling you what to do. We just posted a new picture on Instagram. Yes. My baby photo's on there, so you can check that out. Yep. Chloe's going to put one of her baby photos, right? Maybe. Yeah, she's going to do that. <laughs> um, so that's going to happen. That's pretty <laughs> cool. And, yeah. Have that's a good, it. Uh, have a good Wednesday. Bye. Uh, bye. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.